right? We're back. It's me, Wesley Schantz, and Ben Kozlowski. How's it going, Ben? It's going all right. And we are the hitherto unnamed but now named podcast uh, that's part of the Video Game Academy, um, a.k.a. Video Game Academia. Academia? I'm not sure. Um, However you want to pronounce it. I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But... Uh, we are going to talk now about some Final Fantasy VI, um, released as Final Fantasy III in the States originally, and then re-released a couple of different ways, and uh, I don't know, what are you playing it on right now, Ben? Uh, I'm working through the, the old PS1 edition um, for the yeah. Final Fantasy Anthology when it was packaged with five. Um, it, it's still the easiest way for me to play it at this point, because I still have my PS3 operating as our Blu-ray player. Um, it, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a trip going back and like popping the disc in there and hearing the old PS1 logo pop up. Uh, but yeah, I, I never I never got around to getting the the Game Boy Advance update or any of the other ports since um, that one that one is still my mainstay for playing this game through. Yeah, same. I've that's the way I I've only ever played it on PlayStation. This one I never had for Super Nintendo. Um, not sure why exactly. Um, so, so the version that we are playing then, it opens with this crazy cutscene thing um, that was added for for that re-release. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's worth talking about that a little bit um, first, or if we should just go into like the the proper, you know, original version of the game as it's as it's uh, translated to the PlayStation disc. Um, yeah, I think it, it's worth mentioning at least. Yeah. Like they they did one of those for for all. Th- three of the games if i'm not mistaken like they did it for uh final fantasy 5 and 6 in anthology and they did it for final fantasy 4 in the the chronicles which was packaged with chrono trigger which i think they also did a, a nice little cutscene thing for um it, it was a it was a nice touch i mean they weren't up to a full update at that point the technology wasn't such that like uh, they could you know, easily translate the whole thing to 3D the way that they do fairly frequently now. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it gives you a little bit more of a glimpse of what that world was meant to look like uh, beyond what just the 16-bit graphics could accommodate. It is a lot closer to the kinds of drawings that you see, um, the sort of concept art and, and some of the other art that goes with these games um, when they have the... Um, very stylized, right? Um, mm-hmm. Human figures uh, striding around in these really dark and um, you know, s- there's smoke and steam everywhere. There's there's a great ambience to it all. Um, it's a little bit over the top, I I, I think personally, mm-hmm. um, and I, I wonder why they felt like they needed to include that um, if they felt that the game's graphics were, you know, too dated to draw people in right away. They needed to, to give something a little extra upfront for people, or if they just felt like this is a cool opportunity to kind of reimagine and, and yeah, give it um, a more sophisticated uh, treatment graphically for, for these little moments within the game. Um, and, and does it, I mean, does it add something to the game then when you go back to it through that lens? Um, I mean, I was really struck as I started playing at this time by, like, even by the 16-bit standards, even ignoring the cutscene, how over-the-top Final Fantasy VI starts. <laughs> um, like, it is, it is very clearly marking new ground for the franchise. Um, like, Final Fantasy IV had a dark streak to it, and Final Fantasy II, the one that the States never saw, uh, that one also had a really grim storyline but the aesthetic never quite matched um like it was still the same sort of fantasy adventure uh aesthetic that we that we saw in final fantasy one for the most part like every it would get more sophisticated as as graphical upgrades occurred but but it's still you know you're walking across these plains and walking through these castles and not that much has changed but final fantasy six by contrast like even the opening, the opening title card is dark and grim, and it's like this is not your mom's Final Fantasy game, <laughs> which is kind of nuts considering that this is like the early '90s, and you know, like it's really not all that 
alternative, especially by contemporary Final Fantasy standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, I like that they wanted to mark new territory, that they wanted to make the series different, that they were willing to grow. Um, I mean, at this point I've played all of the old Final Fantasy games up to nine and I haven't beaten all of them, but I've played them all up to the final boss at this point. And, and, you know, one through five have a certain sameness. Uh, the the mechanics they they deviate a little bit between the the job system in one three and five and the the like more pick up characters uh, mechanics that you find in two four and six, but you know it's still you know let's go on a fantasy adventure and you can anticipate a lot of the beats like now is the time that we're going to get the airship or now is the time that we're going to you know translate to the underground or the moon or wherever we're going. Um, and six follows some of those beats, but at the same time, it's just in a radically different world. Um, this is not the happy go lucky home of, you know, elves and goblins and dwarves and such like, like we're introduced to a pretty tyrannical empire right out of the gate. The environment is, has a very clear contrast between the civilization of human beings with their, their factory towers and their smokestacks and their industrialism and the nature that we've come to associate with like final fantasy. Um, the world is already in conflict when we get dropped onto the ground. And again, like four, like two, but the medieval, the medieval world, the medieval time period has been transcended at this point. We're beyond sword and sorcery. Yeah. Yeah, there is a really interesting way in which this one looks forward to what Seven does in a more, even more thoroughgoing fashion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with the opening of that game. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I totally agree with the, uh, the novelty and the growth um, of this series. The, the kind of um, tone of everything at the start mm-hmm. is extremely troubling, actually, right? Because you've got this character, Terra, uh, mm-hmm. who is kind of enslaved by the Empire and forced to be this kind of weapon um, in their ranks. Uh, the, the way that this game kind of lays the scene for you, uh, whether you look at the the new cutscenes or whether you look at the original opening um, is with her kind of on this this journey to um, to make contact with an ancient thing we're not quite sure what it is called an esper that's been discovered um, she is uh, accompanied by these soldiers who are kind of afraid of her right frankly she's yeah. um, more powerful than they are uh, but she is kind of neutralized by this this crown that she's wearing the slave crown Right. And mm-hmm. they uh, they are ruthless. Um, they, they annihilate anyone who comes in, in their way. Right. And you're you're responsible for that as the player. Yeah. You are sort of similarly stuck, you know, destroying things, um, going towards um, a power that you don't understand. Right. And mm-hmm. and that's I found that to be really an interesting way uh, that this game connects with both, you know, seven which is the one that comes after, but also um, uh, four, right? Released as two, where you you start out as the Dark Knight, right? And then you have to kind of go through this process. So there's there's something interesting about the way that your character has to kind of learn uh, who they are and who they're they're meant to be, and that that's that's really front loaded um, and made a problem for you as the player um, really really quickly in this one. Yeah, and at the same time, though, I, I'm struck by how meditative the opening is. I mean, you you start and you don't like you get that little Star Wars esque prologue where it's like there's this empire and magic hasn't been a thing for a while, but now the empire is starting to experiment with magic. But then when when you're actually in the present, when the when the cards all drop, it's just this cliff like this snowy cliff and there's no characters and it the camera holds on it for a good long while before you see the the soldiers bigs and wedge with Terra come onto the cliff and have their conversation as they're overlooking their target and then after the conversation transpires you know that's 
there's this long sequence where they're just walking over the snowy field and some of the some of the t- uh, credits are rolling like the the director of the game and the developers and even Nobuo Uematsu's credit for the for the music yes. and all the while it's playing that Terra's theme which is you know melancholy and haunting um, and it takes its time um, you know which is unusual like even among Final Fantasy games most of the time they want to get you out into the action quickly and final fantasy six gets there for sure like once you're once you hit the streets of narsh you know they just throw enemies at you and you just blow your way through them without breaking the sweat (laughs) um but you know before you can even get that far you're sort of immersed in the situation that it's this long walk over this frozen waste this quiet snowy area it's mysterious and it's grim and it's just (laughs) it's pensive. Like you have, you have a lot of time to sit with the situation before you even get into what makes the game a game. Yeah, no, I, I think that that kind of reflectiveness um, to me, that connotes the kind of cinematic quality that they're aiming at, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have room for those kinds of beats and you trust your audience enough to, to sit with them and, you know, not get bored or shift around too much. Yeah. <laughs> which is asking kind of a lot maybe uh if what you're brought up on is um you know beat em up games and and all that sort of thing right but right but it's a great it is a great and moving kind of showcase for the music um mm-hmm. that to me stands out like the graphics are interesting because they're doing something kind of different with the way that the um the world sort of scrolls past you right it's, it's utilizing some of that um that new technology yeah 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 <laughs> that whole thing but um but i think the music is definitely the standout in, in that 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 passage there um and it's something that i i guess has always struck me about the final fantasy games um and rpgs in general mm-hmm. is that the music is some of the strongest objectively right like yeah. interesting stuff about them um and I, that, that's how I feel. I'm not like a terribly musical person, so I don't know if I could really say why I feel that way. <laughs> but that's no, my impression, I mean, you know? Yeah, and, and you're right on target on this one. I mean, like the, the composer for, for all of the Final Fantasy games from one to nine is Nobuo Uematsu, as I mentioned. And he is, like, he's working at the top of his game for Final Fantasy VI and VII. Um, like I'm a big fan of a lot of his other work. He has some great tracks all over the, the, the series, but six is really where he stands out where, where he gets room to move around. I mean, we're, we're talking about how haunting his soundtrack is, you know, minutes into the game. And like, we're not even close to the opera that he stages (laughs) or, you know, the dancing mad, the boss sequence, which is just so elaborate and fascinating. Um, like he's the the soundtrack really carries so much of this game um it it makes those those pensive moments those quiet situations just stand out even more than the combat and the monsters and the characters um there's just like that pensiveness that those story beats only work because he's, you know, guiding you along. He's helping you find what you're supposed to feel or, you know, in some cases, nothing like when just the wind blows and all you can hear is, you know, that sort of ambience as they, as the characters talk to one another, like it's very well done, especially because, you know, the graphics are still very limited at this point. So there's only so much you can do with the visuals. Right. Well, the sprites have a lot of, uh, spunk to them i would say um yeah they, they really i mean especially like uh, a kefka sort of laughing at you you know and his little sound effect that goes with that um there, there's a lot of great stuff there or uh edgar kind of wagging his finger right mm-hmm. uh re- really sassy uh little things that they do with very few pixels um yep. so you know there's there's a lot to that as well but 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 i do agree i mean um the music has this quality of, of transporting you, um, has this ability, I think, to evoke um, emotion, which isn't, you know, paralleled or even necessarily terribly well supported by what we've got in the story so far. Yeah, um, it's a little early for the good stuff. But but there, you do mention, right, there's this kind of 
sense that magic is this lost thing which has suddenly reappeared uh and you know that that's at the back of what's going on with tara is that she um is special because she uses magic that's why this has been done to her right this um mm -hmm. you know she's been enslaved in this way um that's why she becomes so key to the resistance right the returners that we, we learn about sh shortly here um and and again it's sort of like there's a kind of there's a mystery to something which has been taken for granted in other games really like mm -hmm. there isn't a whole lot of explanation about why you know in final fantasy one you can go to a shop and like buy a magic spell or whatever right right like there's you don't need an explanation that's how the, these kinds of games work that's uh it's happening on a screen instead of on a board but you know that's basically the idea right magic mm -hmm. is this effective thing don't worry too much about where it comes from but but this game i think is is doing a, an important thing in sort of training our attention on you know the person using the magic but still more sort of the the mystery of of what that means right mm -hmm. like what is magic and how can it um you know, how can it reappear? Um, how can people um, use it uh, effectively? And maybe is there a way in which it could be used that isn't tyrannical and destructive, right? Becomes a, a question a little later. Um, so I, I, I would throw that out there as, you know, sort of a parallel in some ways with the power of the music, um, which works partly because we don't always think about it too much, you know, in this case now, magic is is kind of this thing that we are being asked to start to think about um, that has this incredible effect, uh, and we don't really know why. Um, does that does that make sense? I mean, and yeah, and yeah. how does how does that sort of um, drive the early part of this story? Um, I think it's I think it's interesting that like so much attention is paid to it. I mean, it, it's. <laughs> Like you said, when in Final Fantasy One, when you go to a shop and buy a magic spell, nobody comments on it. Like you don't need a long set of title cards, like a Star Wars esque scroll saying, "And then there was magic, and magic was <laughs> awesome, and here are all the different kinds of magic." Um, like everyone just sort of takes it for granted. And you know, Final Fantasy very much sort of created like the paradigm for how magic works in a video game, how you get like these ascending levels of spells, fire one, fire two, fire three, um, <laughs> and on and on. Uh, but here, you know, the fact that the game does dwell on it, that we do get the title cards, that there's that whole like weird in-fight cutscene that will transpire if you're hanging out with Edgar and Locke yeah. and you cast a spell and they're like, what was that? That was, that was what I was just thinking about and laughing yeah. at myself. Yeah, I love that. And it's hilarious. I mean, like they go out of their way to make it silly. Like they're, the sprites are just running up and down the screen right in the middle of the fight. So you see like these monsters hanging on the right, like any time now, guys. Um, <laughs> but no, they, they continue to like freak out about this. Um, and, and again, it just draws attention to the fact that, you know, the thing that you would have taken for granted, the thing that Tara herself takes for granted is unusual in this world is rare and, uh, worth commenting on, um, that all these characters are excited that Tara is here. Like she already is cast in this savior role. Um, yeah. and I think that's part of it. Like, you know, it's so tropey that you have like the one special character who's going to save the world. Um, but Final Fantasy VI does such fascinating things with that trope. Um, and especially here at the beginning, like it seems like she's falling into that category. Like that's her role. But her character is resisting that. Um, she does not want to be the savior. She doesn't see herself as a hero. She can't even remember what happened. I mean, this is classic Final Fantasy amnesia talking, <laughs> but it's also, you know, she's she's so caught up in the whirlwind of events between, you know, the opening of this game when she's marching on Narsh with with the slave crown on her head, so this isn't even her choice, to getting carried away by the returners who are so excited to see her and like you have very little agency. It's almost difficult to tell what's going on yeah. because at this point you have so little 
control and so little command over what in fact the world is like um you like tara just woke up and you don't know what's going on um (laughs) she um she gets all kinds of different attention from all kinds of different people um and having her be a female character i thought was really interesting as well right to to be your main protagonist and to sort of flip around some of the um lecherous like glances that uh come with the territory in these kind of games um and make you sort of the object of them mm-hmm. uh particularly when you meet edgar um yep. and she you know really stands up to him and is like yeah but you're like not that interesting <laughs> like you're not right and, and he's like oh i gotta like work on my technique i'm a little rusty um and you explore the castle and like all the women feel the same way. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was, that was a, another way in which this game really, I thought, yeah, breaks some new territory, um, turns around perspectives in some interesting ways, investigates things that were kind of left um, just cliche before. Um, mm-hmm. And also her, um, her being saved, it becomes a big thing too, right? Like there's this really weird sequence where, she's almost caught by the uh the the guards whoever they are these soldiers she mm-hmm. falls down into a deeper part of the mine and um and then the treasure hunter Locke, right comes to the rescue only he's like really outgunned here and so then the the moogles come to the rescue of right, the rescue on mass <laughs> <laughs> you get like 11 characters uh, where you had never had more than uh, two or three before um and you get to do this kind of weird tower defense thing of Tara, who's out of commission. Uh, that's just, that's just funny, right? It's like yeah. from being the savior, from being the, the chosen one right now, she's just kind of damseled really um, over the top. Right. And, and you have to uh, use these characters who are completely interchangeable, except for the one who gets his dance that he can do. Right. Um, yeah, and you fight these bosses. Yeah, it's so there's something really weird there about yeah playing with the idea of like who's saving who, um, what does that look like, uh, what um, what is really at stake here if if someone can just swoop in and use you know all these powers that apparently I don't know they're just like again taken for granted right like oh the Mughals are here great. <laughs> Well, I think it's also really striking and sort of like one of the core themes of this game is the fact that you don't actually get fixed to one character's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's pretty uncommon, at least among the Final Fantasy games to this point. And while they'll play with that later, you know, there is no Final Fantasy game with as large a cast as six. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is the biggest team uh, when it comes right down to it, like in seven and in eight, well, in seven, you get a bunch of characters, like more than you can even fit in two parties in eight, you only get six. It's only ever two parties. And you always know where all the characters are at any given time. And nine is the same way. Right. Um, but in six, you just get this giant pile, like over a dozen, if I'm not mistaken. And you can only ever have four at a time in a fight. And, you, you don't usually switch back and forth between the parties, although that does happen uh, in the first half of the game and in a couple places elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it's really important. And I think it's a really like that whole sequence where you, you are playing as Terra and you're running through the mines and you're escaping the bad guys and then you fall and then she's at a commission. Like, for any other Final Fantasy game and for most video games to that time, You'd be like, okay, now it's time to get up and it's time to go fight some more. Like, exactly. this is just a setback. And it fakes you out there. Like, she gets up and she walks forward and then she passes out and the screen goes black and you're like, what just happened? <laughs> and then you switch over to Locke's perspective and now you're playing as Locke for the next, you know, five to ten minutes while you go find Terra. You, I mean, you, the player, save the character that you thought you were going to take on. Yeah. Um, so you know that that prospect of of her being 
her being the protagonist on the one hand and being the damsel on the other, like there's this really fascinating dynamic with Tara, especially is she the savior or is she the saved? Is she the object or is she the protagonist? Um, and the game does not want to land hard on either, on either extreme. The game yeah. wants you to realize that, you know, you as the player are going to inhabit a lot of different roles. Um, and really it's the functioning of the team that's going to be crucial. Um, and you know, the, then you get lock and you get down there and you hang out with all of the Moogles. And once again, like, like you said, now you're playing with these big teams of four people on each side and it's still a tough fight. Um, like if you don't manage, if you, if you focus too hard on one team, they'll get wiped out and then you'll have to cover it with one of the others. But that just drives that point home. Like you're not going to succeed at this game unless you work together. Um, the, the different Moogles with Locke saving Terra, like already that theme of teamwork is very, very emphasized here. Um, and, and it's kind of important that the Moogles are, sort of interchangeable like mog does stand out and so does Locke because he's helming one of the teams but it's also important that it's a bunch of people working together joining for this common cause be it the returners or the moogles or your party as it expands over the course of the game yeah yeah the uh the moogles uh i don't think are new to this game if if i'm not remembering wrong. I think they're introduced in five. Yeah, they've I, been they've been bopping around for a little while. Like okay. they might even be earlier than five. I think I think there is like an appearance of Moogles in virtually every Final Fantasy game. Oh, okay. um, they're they're as regular as the Chocobos, but this is the first time that that we see them in such numbers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um and, and I could be wrong. I could like be misremembering. But they're they're darn endearing. I mean, they're cute. Oh yeah. Um, and so you know, that's that's a great sop to throw to your player to be like, okay, so you know, you're a little bit confused about what's going on, but here's something really awesome to get to do very early in the game. Um, oh, you wanted to keep doing that? Sorry, no. Nope. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now it's back to just you and uh, Locke, um, you know, running away again. Um, but but I thought that 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 was an interesting choice, I guess, to um, to really throw you into thick of it. And yeah, those are some difficult fights, as are a lot of the like random encounters early on. They're pretty mm-hmm. hard. You have to kind of know what you're doing. Um, and it, it sort of, it's, it sets you back on your heels because at the very start of the game, like you said, you, you command really uh, overpowered um, a party that, you know, there's like no consequences to anything the enemy can do to you. Uh, although they try to make it, you know, sort of like this strategic thing that, that every Final Fantasy's first boss tries to do, right? With the um, right. featuring the active time battle system. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, where you have to, you know, sort of play your cards right so that you don't get counterattacked. But, but I mean, yeah, there's, there's this way that you're, you, you're given these, these great powers and then they're, then they're taken away from you quickly. And, and I think that that sort of helps to highlight, right, the mystery of what power is in this game, right, or what magic is, what um, saving, right, the, the, the heroic sort of essence of being able to save others. Like, what does that look like in this, in this world? Um, and what can we sort of take from it? I, I would agree, yeah, like the, the relationships and the, the gaining of, of friends and trust and so forth does seem to be like a very strong contender for like sort of an answer to that question. Um, But, but even that is like, you don't really know who any of these characters are, what their, what their motives really are early on. Um, And it's, it's, it's clear, like, yeah, obviously Kefka's no good. Uh, You don't want to be on his side. (laughs) So that's helpful, but, um, but it leaves a lot of room for filling in. Like, yeah. What what are you really? Yeah. Even Kefka's kind of, like ambiguous he's not the main villain at this point he's just you know diplomat slash hired muscle for Mm -hmm. emperor gestal who you do see in a couple of cutscenes, and who does seem like the main bad guy at this point 
Um, I mean, you, you get some of those shots and it, it is not subtle about the Nazi imagery and the fascism that's implied with Gestalt's empire. Um, and, you know, like, it's even a little unsettling now that, you know, because I know what's going to happen. And you see General Sellers sitting at his side and I'm like, oh, crap, right, that's a thing. Yeah. Um, and that will be very important later in the game. Um, but, like, Kefka he's hard to read at this stage. Like he shows up to Figaro and he's just like busting in acting like he owns the place. Clearly he's got the emperor's, you know, preferential treatment. But when, when he starts, when he starts laughing, when he starts interacting with the other characters, it's really tough to pin him down. Like what is his aim? What is his role? Is he in fact just the servant, just you know, the hired muscle or does he have some other agenda? Um, and then, you know, there's his just blunt cruelty becomes even more evident as the game goes on. Like when his solution to Figaro is not doing what I want it to do is let's burn the place to the ground. <laughs> it's just such an obvious overstatement of what, could, of what has to be done. Like he's there with two soldiers. Figaro could, theoretically crush him in an instant and his solution is now nah, i'm just going to torch the place um just casually not even caring laughing as he does it um so you know you know to watch out for him you you can build animosity against him early and then tara has her flashbacks that reveal that she's been the one messing with her head just yeah. making it all that more clear um but it's still hard to read like what he's doing, where he's at, what his role is in this world, and how exactly this world works, disoriented as you are. The the name Kefka, do you know, is that um, supposed to refer to the the writer Kafka? I don't know. Um, like, I've not read any interviews to say that. Okay. Um, it does seem like a fairly obvious reference point, but it's, it's kind of hard to imagine how that would fit i guess that's what i was just trying to think about yeah like the the word the name has sort of become this word that that refers to a style right mm. of um a fiction Kafka-esque. of yeah yeah it, it's like this this you know dismal problem of existence where you're i don't know you're like stymied by petty things and um totally absurd problems pop up where there really shouldn't be any issue and you, you just sort of like have this this humor about it too though right mm -hmm. this like great um sense of what life is because of all the ways in which it's just like stymied from from <laughs> allowed being allowed to flourish right. um, but he doesn't he doesn't strike me as reflecting that that much at all like he he operates within a really messed up you know fascist system but seems to be just having a grand time yeah, um. there there is nothing of the stymied about Kefka. <laughs> like, if anything, his whole character is devoted to how do you how do you break the system? How do you work within <laughs> it to get your own stuff done? Yeah. Um, but I I think that, that is a connection that we should be watching for in this game because I know, um, like between Kefka, the name suggesting Kafka, and the fact that there is a metamorphosis that will transpire and affect all of the characters, mm -hmm. um, like it's there's definitely a connection. I doubt that it is just an accident of translation. Um, yeah. So, so like we'll have to we'll have to examine that more closely as we go along, because it's a yeah. little early to be making those making those connections and it's been a while since I've seen all of the details that would come into play. Well, that, yeah. I mean, I always am curious about these kind of things, like what is intentional, what is an accident of translation or of, mm -hmm. you know, the way that things sound when you put them into English. Um, the name Tara, you know, obviously that has a meaning. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it's the one the developers intended or, or right. what made the translator choose that if, if, it wasn't you know so yeah there's a lot of like layers on which this can go very straight but but it's certainly something i i get kind of you know i get really nerdy about <laughs> like the thinking names. about these kinds of things um 
and making mountains out of molehills probably as a yeah but but i think final fantasy honestly encourages that like final fantasy from day one was full of illusions um like the characters the the summons the magic spells the the various names of various eras or areas i mean of the three characters that we've run into we've got terra meaning earth and her connection to the earth will be very obvious by by the end of this game you have Locke, who is a thief and if that's not intentional then i can't imagine what the translators were thinking um <laughs> like he's he's cast to us as basically indiana jones everyone yeah. says he's a thief and he always corrects them no i prefer the term treasure hunter um and everyone knows that that's you know only skin deep and then we have Edgar, who admittedly is a little bit harder to pin down. Um, like, I don't know if we have an obvious illusion. If there is one, it's probably in connection with his brother, Sabin. Yeah. Um, but then we've got Kafka, who, you know, seems to be a pretty strong Kafka reference and will bear that out by the end. Um, and other characters and other names seem to have equally important significance. Like, Edgar's castle is Castle Figaro. Um, <laughs> If, if that sounds like a pretty direct reference to me, although I'm not entirely sure I'm knowledgeable about either the opera or, you know, the castle to be able to make the connection between the two. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in Final Fantasy lore, like it's always been a grab bag of mythical creatures and and references to to myth and fairy stories and things like that. It's always been there. Um, just, I mean, like probably the Final Fantasy game I have the closest connection to is Final Fantasy VIII. And the first three summons you unlock are Quetzalcoatl, an an Aztec or Incan um, deity, Shiva, the Indian deity of destruction, and then Ifrit, which is an Arabian Nights reference to like the spirits of fire that would wander across the desert. Like, it's not subtle. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the words that they use, the imagery that go with them, the overall kind of um, playfulness, right? That that they're 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 put towards. Um, it it makes it very uh, amenable to um, thinking about, but makes it very hard to pin down yeah. with any kind of certainty that you might desire, or like you can give evidence on all sorts of sides for these things, but. Um, but it is something that I, I definitely want to watch for. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know the, the opera Figaro well, but it's like, it's, it's almost a synonym for opera, right? Mm-hmm. For this kind of, this particular kind of over the top romantic um, swashbuckling, you know, which like every time you're introduced to a character, the, the very way in which it happens, right? The, everything else fades out. The character sort of gets centered. And then like some text comes under to sort of just give you a thumbnail of who this person um, is supposed to like represent, right? Within right. This, this story. But, but and then, then they ask you to name them. <laughs> what's that about? Right? Like you, you can totally change their name um, to anything that you want. Mm-hmm. That just kind of explodes any attempt to like um, track, you know, the meaning of a name or something. <laughs> yeah. Although we do get the defaults. I mean, and, yeah. and, Unlike Final Fantasy V, even, if I recall, Final Fantasy V's main character, you do get to name him, and they do not make a suggestion. Hmm. Um, if it, Like, the community has adopted Bart as oh, yeah. the default for Final Fantasy V. So anyone, anytime people talk about Final Fantasy V, it's always Bart who's running around doing stuff. Um, but here, there's, there's always a suggestion. There's never any, like, unnamed... Or completely unnamed character, nobody that, who the player can easily slot into again because teamwork. Um, but at the same time, they do give you the opportunity to name literally every character who will join the party, um, which I think is something that Seven does as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so, so there is a certain power there. You do get to make them your own. They do get, become something more than just like a character in a piece of media it is something you can personalize something you can change the yeah the ways that you sort of put your stamp on them you you don't really make that many decisions um but you at least get to kind of yeah personalize um 
relate to in some way or um, you know connect with uh, mm -hmm. these characters. The <laughs> the ways that you kind of move through the world. Um, we you know you mentioned like eventually you'll get an airship. That's pretty much a given. Um, but early on in this game, you also get the chocobo to run around on, and and that does something weird with the graphics too. It it does that same kind of right. Um, changing the terrain the 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 view of the terrain um and it seemed it's kind of pointless actually because there isn't really anywhere to go it's just like showing you this thing that you can do um yeah it's actually really hard to see where to go <laughs> it is they, they give you the chocobo and they're like go find the cave to the south and it's almost impossible to distinguish a <laughs> cave from a mountain when they tell you to do that. So that's not especially helpful. Um, but at the same time, I can see why they're doing it. Like this is definitely one of the, one of the look at how far we've come graphics updates. Yeah. Um, they're, they're flexing the power of the SNES. Um, and you know, it, it's not really like a resolution issue. Like it, it's the same world. They're literally just, you know, rendering it differently. Now it's the floor that you walk upon in a fully or supposedly fully 3D environment. They'll, they'll play with that more. It's more Doom-ish than full 3D. <laughs> um, but, but what's really interesting is how fast you can travel across it. Like when they flatten the world for you, you can then run um, as though, you know, like the little squares that you've been confined to up until this point are not a factor. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's like Mario Kart, you know, you, you are not <laughs> fixed to a certain pattern of, tra of travel. You can, you can cross the lines. Um, you can park in a place that is not necessarily a square that you could theoretically park in. Um, so, so I, I mean, it's very dated now. I'm not denying that for a moment. Um, and it's kind of, kind of hard to see the justification, but I, I can also imagine like the first generation of players being like, Oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever. I can't believe that they can do this now. Um, yeah, and like you never get attacked when you're on a chocobo. There's something yeah. really, really satisfying about getting a, a respite from the random encounters, yep. which are numerous and can be kind of tedious. Yeah, and being able to just travel across the world that quickly is also really nice. Um, yeah. Well, when you get um, when you get to Figaro, uh, you meet Edgar. You also hear about his brother. You mentioned him, Sabin or Sabin, mm -hmm. uh, the twin who gave up the throne right um, mm -hmm. to be free. Uh, he's a he's a really attractive character. I feel like. Yeah. Um, in a way that even Locke uh, and Tara uh, not, are, are not really, because they each of them is is kind of compromised in weird ways, right? Like Tara, mm -hmm. you know, albeit unwillingly, has like killed a lot of people. Apparently, um, doesn't really know what she's doing. Uh, Locke is this treasure hunter, right? He's kind of a scalawag, it seems like, um, or at least that's the implication. Mm -hmm. uh, Edgar played by Harrison Ford in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but the but Sabin is just um, he's just this hunky, like wonderful, spirited person uh, who has who has given up everything to be um, to be you know his own person, right? Like he mm -hmm. he doesn't want the the leadership. He doesn't want the power, right? Um, so we we find out more about him soon, but. Uh, that that contrast there, there, it strikes me that there is something really archetypal. Whether the names have a particular referent or not, in the uh, in the way that this, these two brothers have uh, uh, approached their sort of destiny, right? Like mm -hmm. that that strikes me as having a kind of universal um, relevance, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't take away from it that Edgar himself is like a total beast in combat. Yeah. Uh, once he's in your party, you just, I mean, you really don't need anyone else. <laughs> he kills everything in one hit for a while there. Uh, so yeah, I don't know quite what to make of that. Um, but, but in that contrast, right, you have these two brothers um, making uh, apparently quite different decisions. Um, 
there, there seems to be a, a kind of paradigm there for like what are the the limits uh, available to you in this in this world yeah i'm also struck too like as much as he's described as having a free spirit as you know forsaking the throne for his own freedom it's also emphasized that the decision of who the who the kingdom passed to was made by a coin flip oh yeah um, like it's on the one hand you know it emphasizes that freedom and that that um complete power of the will but at the other hand it's just dumb luck um and there's a sort of interesting fusion of the two forces in this game throughout like you said there aren't a lot of choices that you get to make in this game although the couple that you do are really important in their own right um but at the same time you know there's a lot that you can't control I mean, especially comparing this game to to Final Fantasy V on the one hand and VII on the other, those are both games with some pretty robust mechanics as far as the power you have over the customization of your characters and what they can mm-hmm. do. Like in V, you've got the whole job system and you can decide what class each of your characters is and upgrade them accordingly and you know be able to switch them out at will. And in VI, you don't get any of that. Like Each character has one special ability that is unique to them yeah. And really the choice is who are you going to include in your party at any given moment? Yeah. Um, like whose, whose abilities pair well together. Um, so Terra will only ever use magic. Locke will only ever be able to steal. Um, Edgar will only ever be able to use his occasionally crazily overpowered <laughs> tools that you can buy from various vendors. Yeah. Um, and and, and know, yet, but magic is really powerful, though. <laughs> it is. Did you see her use fire? It cast. It like did fifty damage to them. <laughs> it's really yep. impressive. And I mean, again, like they freak out when they see her doing it, and you know, it is really powerful in the context of the game. Like even when you're wandering across the desert and you're meeting some fairly next level bad guys, you know, usually fire can take out one, take out a guy in one hit. Yeah. Um, Plus, like, on an even more useful setting, she has Cure. Oh, yeah, that's right. Cure is so important. Let's not forget, yeah, she doesn't just destroy things. She also heals She also heals. Um, So, you know, all of the other characters can use potions and random stuff that you pick off of the map, sure. But, like, even Edgar's fancy arsenal of gadgets does not have any healing abilities at this point. So Terra is going to be your healer by default for quite a while. Um, True. Yeah. So she, I mean, she has this kind of dual aspect as well. And I, I wonder if that's something we can kind of pick out maybe in each of the characters where, although you don't make a lot of choices, you do in, in the framework of the battle, get to decide what role they're going to play. Mm-hmm. And you do get to see within their story, as well, how those kinds of um, choices did determine things for them, did, you know, make them who they are, uh, for, for better or worse. Um, and I, I like the, the idea about the randomness, too, um, or the, the power of, of chance or fate or whatever it is that's, that's kind of guiding things here. Um, that seems to bring us back to the Esper, right? That, like, is this mysterious thing that we're drawn to and yet when we get to it it just kind of resets the game like we sort of start over again um Mm -hmm. we we don't get to uh meet it talk to it uh really avail ourselves of its of of its power at this point in the game and that's going to be something that that becomes a kind of large scale like structural component of the game is like what's going on with these espers, what their intentions are, um, how how things that you know um, might seem to have no cause actually kind of go back to go back to them, mm-hmm. um, pulling the strings or whatever, right? Like that. That's an idea um, that gets planted pretty early there, um, and it's it's also. I think a, a cool kind of contrast with this this enslavement component, right? Like mm-hmm. she's drawn to this thing, but not in a s- enslaved kind of way. 
in, in a different kind of way. Um, but they sort of look similar if, if you're not, you know, paying too close attention. Yeah, yeah. The, the chain of causality leading up to that encounter is a, is a tangled one for sure. Um, there's, I mean, as we get further into the game, it'll be clear that, you know, on some level, Kefka intended this to happen, but on another level, he did not intend for it to happen this way. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and even Biggs and Wedge, you know, your, your military companions in their suits are sort of hinting at this. Like, they had to bring Terra along on this mission because she has a unique relationship to the Espers because she can do magic. Yeah. But of course, when she actually meets the Espers, it, it, you know, it's this weird frozen creature who, who seems fairly inanimate. But the first thing that it does is it winks Biggs and Wedge out of existence. Like, <laughs> not even, you know, your usual fight animation or kill animation, but just like one second Wedge is there, the next second Biggs is like, what the heck just happened? He's yeah. gone, and then he's gone too. Um, like there's a sort of casual extreme power being employed here, something beyond even what you've seen Terra wield at this point. And then, and I mean, again, this is right after you've marched through Narsh, just stomping whoever gets in your way. And then this Esper is just like, and now you're gone. Uh, you and your <laughs> big Thanos. fancy mech. Yeah. yeah. You and your big fancy mech are nothing in comparison to the big powers that are actually at the foundation of this world. Um, But at the same time, this is another subversion of old Final Fantasy tropes. Like you would have the the crystals in Final Fantasy 1 and 5 and they're sort of set up as, you know, these are the doodads, these are the MacGuffins, these are the things you're going to be collecting (laughs) over the course of the game. Most of our quests are going to circulate around getting to these objects and for the espers, you know, you get to this object and the object proceeds to wreck you <laughs> and then it disappears and you don't know what happened to it. Yeah. Um, so again, you're sort of like every time that you think you've got a handle on what Final Fantasy VI is doing, Final Fantasy VI takes a sharp right turn and is like, nope, back to square one, try again. Uh, we'll we'll explain things in our own time. <laughs> yeah, you're you're in you're in good hands though, right? Like you, yes. you never feel like there isn't an explanation, just that it is not quite um, within your grasp at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so the the trajectory of the game it does swerve way away from the Esper. Like we're we're not really talking about it for a while here. We're trying to go connect up with the resistance to the empire and and that whole thing um next time i guess we'll learn more about this um brother sabin and what he's been up to we also meet shadow i think right uh briefly yeah i think that that's coming up yeah Uh, at least for me because i didn't make it into the cave yet yeah so he i think he's hanging out at the inn in the next town uh with his dog um and i don't Frankly, I don't remember too clearly what all the steps are beyond that, but um, I know that Ultros can't be too far off also. So mm-hmm. there's that to look forward to. Um, but yeah, so we'll try to play like, you know, another hour or so this coming week. And pick up there. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. Take it easy. You too. <laughs>